All right. Well, good morning. Welcome. My name is Pastor Tommy. I'm glad that you guys are with us. If you uh, haven't already, I encourage you to have your Bibles open. If you don't have a Bible, grab one from underneath the chair um, and open up to Romans chapter 15, verse 14. Uh, with the beginning of this section in chapter 15, Paul is beginning to land the plane. So he, he's bringing this very long, weighty letter to the church in Rome to a close. Um, and you can see this, by the way, that the content shifts a little bit, becomes a little bit more personal, talks about some of the logistical things that are going on in Paul's life. Um, in this section, we get a glimpse into Paul's heart. Uh, we, get, we get a glimpse into his calling and the relationship that he has with this church in Rome. And here's how I want to frame the text for us this morning. It's a bit of a... Um, Modge podge of topics. Um, living as a Christian is not easy. So that's what we've gathered so far as we looked at Romans 12, starting with Romans 12, all the way to last week, uh, chapter 15, verse 13. So, like that whole section reveals to us that following Christ, being faithful to God, um, is hard. And Paul is someone who knew this reality better than most. In the verses that we're looking at today, I see at least five principles that Paul lives out that we should strongly consider adopting today as Christians if we haven't already. So in order to be strong and mature like Paul, here are the five exhortations I see in the text. Number one, Christians find peace in the essential work of Christ in other people. Number two, you don't have to worry about writing these down. We're going to go through them. Number two, Christians trust the Holy Spirit to sanctify others and the church. Number three, Christians evangelize naturally when we believe that the gospel has power. Number four, Christians pray with and pray for other Christians. And number five, Christians ask for prayer. So before we tackle the text, let's pray together one more time. Father, your word is truth. We pray that you would sanctify us individually and corporately as a church by this truth. I pray that you would knock down defensive walls, that you would bring freedom to those of us who are enslaved or ensnared by sin. We pray for a reprieve from the trials, the tribulations, and the temptations of life for the next hour or so, God, just as we read your word. God, give us a focus, give us patience, give us a steadiness to be able to sit and listen to your word. We pray that your word would be transforming us and pray that it would be equipping us to live as your faithful sons and daughters. God, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. We pray that you would use this time for the building of your kingdom and for your glory. And it's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. So like I mentioned, Paul jumps around a little bit um, in, in these 19 verses that we're looking at today. So I just want to give you a quick overview and outline of what he's saying, and then we're going to dive in specifically into a few places to pull out what I think is really important for us to see in this text. So Paul begins with some praise for the Romans uh, in verse 14 at the beginning. He, and then he lets them know that the reason why he's written them this really long letter is twofold. So one, he's doing it as a reminder of the essential aspects of the gospel and of their faith. And number two, because it's his job, it's his responsibility to help bring them further along in their maturity in Christ. You see that in verses 15 
through 16. And then in verses six, uh, I'm sorry, 17 through 21, we get an intimate look at his personal calling into ministry. Uh, he shares some of the travel details in verses 20 through, 22 through 29. We get a glimpse of his itinerary. Um, so he's on the way to Jerusalem. He's delivering some resources for the poor people in Jerusalem. He wants to stop off in Rome on his way to Spain to preach the gospel in Spain. So Rome is kind of his pit stop on the way to Spain. That's his plan. Uh, and then in the final verses, in verses 30 through 31 in this section, Paul asks the Romans to pray for him. Uh, and, and he says that his current, uh, so that his current ministry efforts are fruitful and so that he can finally make it to Rome. It says that he's been wanting to go there for years um, so that he could be refreshed and encouraged by them. So that's the 5,000-foot view of what's happening in this passage. So what are these five important principles that we see Paul exemplifying in these verses? The first is that Christians find peace in the essential work of Christ in other Christians. So look at verse 14, right at the beginning. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. So as a mature and strong believer, we saw this back in chapter 15, verse 1. This is who Paul is identifying as. Paul takes a moment here to reflect on the essential spiritual state of those in Rome. So yes, there's lots of work to do. There's a lot of maturing to do, both in their theological understanding of the gospel and also their practical living out of the gospel. But at the end of the day, they are his fellow family members in Christ. And to this end, he can say with a very warm heart in this verse, I myself am satisfied about you, my brother, brothers. This is a beautiful display of what we just talked about previously in verses 1 through 13 of this chapter. So despite the weaknesses of the Christians in the church at Rome, Paul assumes his obligation as the mature and strong Christian to bear with his weaker brothers and sisters, and that bearing involves affirming and encouraging them in what is most critical and what is most crucial about them, that they know Christ and not that they just know Christ, but the fact that they are filled with goodness. This is not a goodness that the world knows. This is a Christ-like goodness. The word in the Greek there is kindness that is only possible as a fruit of the Holy Spirit, which dwells inside of them. Remember the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23? And so Paul is satisfied that they know Christ, that they are truly converted, that they've been justified by faith in Christ, and that this conversion has led to an actual transformation where they are full of this goodness and kindness of Christ. And then, at the end of verse 14, that they are filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. So the church at Rome has heard the gospel. They've been converted by belief in the gospel. They've gained this knowledge of the gospel. And perhaps as an exclamation point to the already incredible work of God in the people at Rome, they are instructing one another in the gospel. In other words, they are taking the time to admonish one another. They're warning one another. They're correcting one another. Not so that... Everyone would align with certain opinions on non-essential things. Remember, that's all of 13 and 14. But in knowledge and understanding of Christ and the gospel, 
So that means that when a brother or sister would be incorrect in the understanding of God or the gospel, they're taking the time to teach them, to correct them with gentleness and kindness and goodness. Remember, they're full of that for growth and maturity in Christ and his word. So in other words, this church in Rome is self-sufficient. They are not spiritually meandering around as a group of people kind of pawing for truth. No, they've actually found truth. (laughs) They found the one who is truth, and they're living a fruitful, sanctifying way as a community. It's not perfect, but they're doing it. They're doing church. So no matter what church you are a part of, if you're not a part of Mercy House, it doesn't matter if you're uh, a part of a house church that meets in a living room. It doesn't matter if you're uh, a part of a mega church that has different satellite locations that like beam in the preacher onto a screen. And look, I'm sure you have an opinion about all these different church models, but there will always be work that needs to be done no matter what church you're a part of. What I mean is there will be a need for theological bolstering. There's going to be interpersonal challenges to overcome. There's going to be philosophical and cultural adjustments that need to be made in that community. There's going to need to be systematic reforming. And and this is because every church that exists is imperfect. It's imperfect because it's filled with imperfect people. I mean, think about it for just a minute. The church exists to gather and serve broken, sinful people who are then encouraged to not be ashamed of their messiness, but to live transparently every single day in needy reliance of Christ. That's a messy group of people. So finding a perfect church that has it all together and has no problems is like trying to find a hospital without sick people in it. Like, you're not going to find one if it's doing the job it's supposed to be doing. So the church at Rome was no exception. They were a mess. They were. Their theology was squishy. Uh, They struggled with divisiveness that kind of tended toward ethnocentrism at best and racism at worst. They are systematically prideful and arrogant toward one another. They fought over the silliest of things, like whether or not to eat meat and whether or not to celebrate certain holidays. Yet, Paul was satisfied in them as a church. Why? Because of the essential work of of Christ that had been done in them. I think we as Christians can easily become frustrated with one another. We can lose patience with one another. We can fail to bear with one another, like Paul exhorts us to do at the beginning of this chapter. And and it's hard for us to do all these things, and we fail in all these areas because we don't pause every now and then to remember and reflect on what God has actually done in the hearts and the lives of our brothers and sisters. This action is a necessary part of a healthy Christian's life. The heart of Paul, as he approaches his ministry and his relationships, is defined by the work of Christ and what Christ has accomplished in those people. This is why he sees his fellow people in church, not as acquaintances. He doesn't see them as co-workers. He doesn't see them as merely even friends. He sees them as family. So in Christ... We, as a church, are brothers and sisters of one another. That's why he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers. So is this how we view one another? Do we view each other, the people in our lives who are followers of Christ, as our brothers and sisters? 
Some of you might have very strained or estranged relationships with your biological siblings, so don't use that as the frame of reference for the brotherly and sisterly affection that the Bible calls us to have for one another. Ultimately, the language of family in the Bible is not hyperbole. It is not an exaggeration. It is not a metaphor. God has adopted us into his family, which is a cosmically legal process that is accomplished through Christ, which makes us literally sons and daughters of God. So when the Bible says this about our identity, it is not a metaphor. It is not God saying, I love you so much, it's as if I adopted you as my own child. And it's not God saying, I love you so much, I could call you my son or my daughter. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, you might read that and observe that Paul doesn't use any female pronouns there. He doesn't include the language of daughter anywhere in there. Why? Is this because men are only able to be adopted into God's family? Absolutely not. I want you, can you keep that verse up there just so people can see it? That the use of sons here is very intentionally empowering to women, and, and here's why. The phrase adoption as sons right there is actually one word in the original Greek. In New Testament culture, um, it was the male son and not the daughter who was able to receive a greater inheritance and greater honor in the family. This is not right by any means, but that is what was culturally normal back then. And so when Paul says... In verse 5 there, that we might receive adoption as sons, he means that we receive not a nominal adoption, not just a name change, not an adoption into a, uh, being a second-class member of the family, but a full adoption, an adoption that includes an inheritance and an honor that was reserved for only the blood-born males. And then he says right after that, and because you are sons, the word for sons there can be translated as, as a child of, of any gender. So it could be sons, it could be daughters, and rightfully so because this letter is being read to the church, which includes women. So Paul does a, a little bit of a wordplay here to communicate using the cultural context of his time that both men and women are adopted in, in a full and complete adoption, which includes the highest level of honor and inheritance that would be actually culturally unacceptable to bestow on anyone other than the blood-born males. So women, you are called sons of God. When that is shown to you, that's not, be, being, uh, that's not the Bible being gender exclusive to you. That is God being actually incredibly graciously inclusive and empowering to you. What, you're, what you should be seeing there is that you are on equal footing as your brothers in the honor and the inheritance that you receive as a child of God. So that's a bit of a rabbit hole that we just went down, so let me pull us back up. If you are legally adopted by God as sons with full honor and inheritance, then you are literally 
sons and daughters of God. And if you are literally sons and daughters of God, then you are literally brothers and sisters to one another. And if you are literally brothers and sisters, then there is a spiritual and familial bond that you have that is the basis for your relationship with one another as believers in Jesus. Now, Paul is able to bear with the people in the church and in all of their craziness, and not just in Rome, but in Corinth and Philippi, all these churches, he's able to bear with them because they're his brothers and his sisters in a real way. They are his family. And he's satisfied in them because of this eternal reality and for what God has done in their hearts to make them a child of God. So I want you to do this. I want you to take a minute. It won't take a full minute. Take a few seconds to think about your closest Christian friend. Think about them, someone who really encourages you in the faith. I want you to picture their face, okay? You got them in there? Now I want you to think about other Christian friends that you have, maybe in your fellowship, maybe in your family, maybe here in this church. Don't stare at them. Just think about them in your head. So let let me remind you of something as you're thinking about these people. God has made himself known to these people. He has woken them up from their sinful slumber. He has shown them their need for him. He has given them the ability to call out to God and, and to believe and trust in Christ. They have been miraculously raised from death into life. So the blood of Christ has washed them and their sin and their shame completely clean. They are no longer destined for eternal death in their sin, but they are destined for eternal life in Christ. Like they are a literal adopted child of God. The fact that the people that you're thinking of right now, the fact that they are Christians is miraculous. It is miraculous. This isn't a Christian club that you sign up for and then you get spam email for. This is a cosmic war for the souls of men and women with terrifying forces of evil trying to steal, kill, and destroy humanity. And in that framework that is our reality, God has entered into the battlefield to fight and to die for his beloved and to bring them home safely to his eternal kingdom. And he has done that for the people in your lives who know him. That is our reality. If our very close friend gets into a horrific, a horrific car accident and they have to endure hours of surgery and you're praying for them with all of your family and all of your friends together, praying for them day and night and they are miraculously brought back from death and then you see them for the first time in the room, you're not going to say, hey, your hair is a mess right now. You're not going to, like the first thing you're going to say to them is not, Hey, I've got a little bone to pick with you. Just a little, just a little. I've been wanting. I've been waiting for you to wake up so I can just tell you this thing. It makes me so frustrated about you. No, we will celebrate the fact that they are alive. All of the frustrations, all of the opinions that might create distance between you and them, are completely washed away because of the greater reality of what has happened in their lives. Remembering the spiritual revival of our brothers and sisters in the context of our ultimate reality will allow us to bear with them, to be patient with them, to be satisfied and and have peace, even when there's still work to be done in them. 
Because like Paul, we can find peace in the essential work that Christ has done in our brothers and our sisters. This is true for our church as a whole as well. Remember, Paul is writing to the collective church in Rome, not just to individuals. We, we can often take church for granted sometimes because it's here every Sunday, 365 days a week at 365 North Pleasant Street at 10 a.m. Whether you come or not, we're going to be here. Even on Christmas Day this past year, other churches were closed. We were like, absolutely, we're going to do church on Christmas Sunday. But every single Sunday that we meet is a gracious and a miraculous provision from God. So sure, there's work that needs to be done, but Mercy House, be satisfied in the essential work that God has done in our church. We preach the gospel, we worship the God of the Bible, we instruct and correct each other by God's word. Like There is a great reason, a great many reasons for us to be satisfied and at peace in the house of the Lord today. All right, this is one verse and one point, so we got to pick this up a little bit. Verse 15, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And Paul encourages and affirms the church in Rome in verse 14, but then he rationalizes why he wrote them this long, meaty letter. And this just affirms what we've been talking about. It's possible to be satisfied and at peace with someone or even the church for the essential work of Christ that's been accomplished in them, yet still wanting them to grow and to mature. I love my two little daughters. I am so satisfied with them. But we're still training them. We're still instructing them. We're still equipping them. We're still calling them to so much more than being the cute five- and seven-year-olds that they are. That's Paul's heart. He loves his family. He's satisfied and at peace knowing that they are his family in Christ, but he wants them to continue maturing and continue growing. That's why he's written them this letter, which he admits in verse 15 right there. It's bold, <laughs> and it is a way for them to be reminded of the important aspects of the gospel, to, to be bolstered in their theological understanding of God and, and their relationship with God, and to hold them accountable for how to practically live out their faith in Christ. Why does Paul do this? Well, he reminds us in verse 16 of his calling to be a minister, that, that's a servant or a spiritual caretaker, specifically to the Gentiles, to, to the non-Jewish people. And these verses begin revealing his philosophy for ministry. Uh, Paul writes these letters to churches to provide theological instruction, and then we'll see later on that it's always his, his, his um, intention to go and to actually visit these churches in person to encourage them and to further minister to them. And all the while, look at the end of verse 16, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That's an important verse. Paul doesn't see himself as an agent of sanctification. So while it is his responsibility to minister to these churches, it is not his responsibility that they heed his instruction and walk in obedience to the Lord. 
That work, that responsibility between that individual and the Lord is the responsibility of the Lord, of God. And it's accomplished by the Holy Spirit. So again, I think this gives us insight into why Paul is able to be passionate about the early church and their spiritual state while not beating them up and ripping out their hair like Nehemiah does in Nehemiah chapter 13 in frustration and impatience with his fellow brothers and sisters when, when they're just not walking in the, in, in the right path. If you remember from Nehemiah 13 during our last sermon series, you see at the end of the book, all of Israel just reverts back to their old ways of living. They have this great revival. They're walking in the Lord, and then they just throw it all away. And Nehemiah comes back, and he has a word to say and some actions to back that up. So I'm not saying that what Nehemiah did was wrong. There's definitely some holy anger and some godly judgment that's happening in Nehemiah 13, but it's because Israel did not have the Holy Spirit. That was, that was what was ultimately frustrating for Nehemiah. They had no means to be made holier outside of their own ability to, to kind of force themselves to change their behavior, which never worked for the people of God. They didn't have God personally transforming them and sanctifying them. Nehemiah could not rest knowing that God was sanctifying his people in a fruitful, meaningful way as a community. As a community. So he took it upon himself, and he resorted to his fists. Mercy House, we don't have to take it upon ourselves to see our brothers and our sisters sanctified. Which leads us to the second point this morning. Christians trust the Holy Spirit to sanctify the church. This does not mean we don't instruct. It does not mean we don't admonish or reprove or correct. But when we don't, what we don't have to do is take the burden of our brothers and sisters being transformed and putting that on our own backs. That burden is too great for us. It is not meant for us. And if we do take that burden on ourselves, whether it's the burden of our friends being transformed or our children being transformed or our parents or whoever is in our lives, we take that on our backs and the rate of the sanctification in our brothers or sisters in the church or the church as a whole is not moving at the pace that we'd want it to, then our frustration will grow and our discontent will grow and it might breed into bitterness and resentment and we'll find it difficult to bear with our siblings in Christ and to bear with the church. We might resort to fighting and pulling out hair, theirs or our own. So let's do what Paul does and trust that the Lord will accomplish the work that only he can accomplish. We can trust the Holy Spirit to sanctify the church. Look at verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who nev have, never heard of, have never heard will understand. So here, 
We get some more insight into Paul's heart and his mind as, uh, as, and, and how he views his ministry. And we know Paul today, as we look back, as a church planter. He's one of the most prolific church planters in the history of the world. He planted somewhere in the neighborhood of 14 to 20 of the original churches all across Europe and Asia. But what's fascinating to me is I do not think that this was his main driving force. I, I don't think that Paul was fueled by a mission to plant as many churches as possible. When you read his letters, including this section in Romans here, you see that he was actually driven by an incredibly evangelistic heart. He just wanted people to hear the good news of the gospel. He wanted to tell people about Jesus. Church planting was just a means to that end. As I read commentaries on this passage, a lot of people have pointed out how you see a strategy for church planting that we ought to follow today. So if you look at these next verses, look at verse 22. Paul says, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you, but now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. So the region that he's referencing here are from earlier in verse 19, Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. Uh, this is a strange statement for him to say that he no longer has any work to do in these regions because these regions are huge. We're talking about hundreds of towns and villages between them, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people to preach the gospel to. There's, there's no way that he preached the gospel to each and every single person. This is strange. It would be like if Paul planted a church in Boston and then in Worcester and then said, all right, I'm done in Massachusetts. Like, let's keep on going. Well, what about all these hill towns? What about Amherst? What about, I don't know, those little towns like Palmer up there, you know? What about those? So what commentators will point out is that this is a Pauline strategy for church planting to strategically plant churches in major urban cities so that the churches in those cities can then go and reach their surrounding towns and villages. So I think that's a valid interpretation. I, I think that um, it, it's a good point. I can see the very strategic value to planting churches in urban cities simply because it's, it's very population dense, and so you get more bang for your church planting buck if you go to those cities. But I think what's more valuable in these verses is not Paul's strategy, but Paul's heart. Look again at verse 20. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. What he's saying is that it is his ambition, it is his goal to tell people about Jesus in places that have never even heard the name Jesus. So who here has a verse that's important to them? So, like, like a life verse that you can think of right off the top of your head. Like, hey, do you have a verse that's important to you? Raise your hand. Nice and high. Okay, that's awesome. Who would get that tattooed on their body? Yeah, a few of us. Who has it tattooed on their body? A few, yeah, all right. We got. I'm not going to make you show those up here. This is an illustration here. I'm not going to argue that this is Paul's life verse or that he would get it tattooed on his body, but it's certainly very important to him, and it shaped how he approached his ministry. So he cites this verse in verse 21, which is actually a citation of Isaiah 52, verse 15. 
Paul wanted to go where no Christian had gone before because he wanted to see this prophecy in Isaiah 52 being fulfilled. So he wanted to go to places with zero warmth for Christianity. He wanted to go into places where Christ wasn't even a talking point because he trusted in the power of the gospel to do the miraculous work of the gospel so that people who had never been told, who have never heard, would be able to see God and understand the gospel. And then all glory would go to God. This is one of the moments where you see how ferocious of a Christian Paul was. So look, Paul, if you look at other champions of the faith throughout the Bible, like David had his Goliath, right? Daniel had his lion's den. Paul's fiery furnace was that he willingly sought out these places and jumped into these places that are completely unreached, untouched parts of the world where his persuasive power, his fame, or any clout that he had, any strength that he had as a human being meant nothing. And where Christ would have to show up in awesome power to bring people to faith in himself. This isn't a new discovery about Paul. He opened his letter to the Romans with this. Chapter, chapter 1, verse 16. This should be on your screens. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Man, Paul believed that, didn't he? Now, I know that Paul is unique. His calling is specific to him. Not all of us are called to go to the unreached peoples of the world, to places where they've never heard the gospel before. But some of you are. Some of you may even know that you are. And you need to let us know so we can equip you, we can train you, and then we can send you. But whether we're called to frontier missions or not, the heart of church planting, the heart of missions is a heart of evangelism. It's a desire that people, for, for people to hear the good news of Jesus and for people to believe in him and to call on him and to be saved from their sin. And so this is our third point this morning. Christians evangelize naturally when we believe that the gospel has power. Christians evangelize naturally when we believe that the gospel has power. We can do evangelism out of obligation, out of a sense of duty, but many of us struggle to share the gospel to our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, our families, simply because we don't believe that the gospel itself has the power to save. We might think that this power is in our persuasive language, Maybe our ability to reason, maybe the knowledge that we have of the Bible and of apologetics, and those are all important, but if this is where you're at, where you feel like evangelism depends on you, it will never happen naturally. It will always feel a little bit forced. It will always feel like maybe an unbearable burden, and it will likely never be done. And Paul's heart to see Isaiah 52:15 in action to test the strength and the power of God in the gospel by throwing himself into the hardest possible places to do evangelism, it led to churches being planted in places where churches should not have been able to be planted. And this is why Paul is able to say, verse 17, in Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. 
So who is God calling you to share the gospel with? The calling to evangelize is not just for the Pauls of the world. It's not just for people called to frontier mission work. It's not exclusively for the gifted or for the extrovert. Jesus calls all of us, if we are followers of him, to make disciples, to share the gospel, to instruct people and to teach people what Jesus said and did. And if you get anxious thinking about that, if you get nervous when you're next to your coworker, even though you've already resolved, like, okay, today I'm going to have the conversation, and you, you start getting scared, maybe you have an opportunity with your sibling or your parents or whoever it is, I want to encourage you to remember God's words in Isaiah 52, verse 15. Those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. That is not empty talk. That is not hyperbole. That is a declarative promise from God. People will see. People will understand. And the question for us is, will we be the means by which God carries out this beautiful promise? Let's jump down to verse 30. And we're going to breeze through this, and then we'll be done for the day. Verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Paul ends this section of his letter with a plea to the Christians in Rome to pray for him and to pray with him. He he adds a weight to this plea by invoking that familial tie that we just talked about, the unity that he has with them as Christians um, that they experience as the family of God. And he's saying, please, please, my brothers, my sisters, under the common lordship of Christ, by the love of God that binds us together through the Holy Spirit that's inside of each of us, please strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. So this brings us to our fourth point this morning. Christians pray with and pray for other Christians. Christians pray with and pray for other Christians. We see this in Paul's invitation right here to the church in Rome. His plea is for them to strive together with him in prayer. I I would circle those words together, strive together with me in your prayers. That striving together, that word striving means to struggle together. It means to come alongside and to assist. It's often used in a military context to mean fighting alongside someone in combat. So the implication is that Paul is praying, that, that, that Paul is praying and, and he's inviting his brothers and his sisters to come into that wrestling match, that struggle, that fight of prayer alongside him. And not only this, but look at the contents of his request. Look at the second part of verse 30. Strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. 
that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. He's asking them to pray with him for him. Specifically, he's, he has three prayer requests here, that he would be able to be freed from the people who are opposing his ministry in Judea, that the task of delivering the money to the church in uh, Jerusalem would be successful, and that he'd finally be able to come to Rome. So we might know as Christians that, that we ought to pray, but as we mature and as we grow in our faith, that prayer begins extending beyond saying, God, I know you're out there. Help me with this exam tomorrow that I haven't studied for. In Jesus' name, amen. Right? Like, maybe it's God. I don't ask for much, but can you please give me this? And you can insert whatever you need in that moment. So I, 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 I am glad, if that is your prayer life, I am glad as your pastor that you are praying. Right? Like, that's good. But I want to call you to more than that. And for some of us, our next step in our spiritual maturity is to pray for things other than just ourselves and our own circumstances, but to pray for our brothers and our sisters. This is an extension of last week's application, but, but here's the question. Are we asking our brothers and sisters, hey, how can I pray for you? How can I be praying for you? And then if you want to take it another step, and take another step in your Christian maturity, we're not just praying for our Christian brothers and sisters, but we're praying with them as well, striving alongside them in prayer. I want to encourage you to find opportunities to pray with other believers. You could do this as a two-for-one. You can ask someone, hey, is there anything that I can be praying for you for? And then you can pull like a holy sneaky move and say, hey, can we pray right now? And there are people who do this to me all the time, and I love it. I love it because it shows an urgency in them. It shows a willingness in them to pray for me. It's not an empty promise because I've done this before. Like, I, I forget sometimes, like, how many of you have made an empty promise and said, hey, totally, I'll pray for you. And then you just, like, don't, <laughs> right? Can we be honest? Maybe it's just me. One way to avoid forgetting is just to do it right away. Like, why not? It doesn't have to be long and drawn out. You don't have to, like, get on your knees in front of, like, everybody and, and pray. You can say, hey, let's pray. Let's do it now. Hey, let's pray. All right? God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for how you've already shown up in your text. We pray that you would help us land this plane in a way that's fruitful and profitable for you and our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. We did it. See? We prayed with each other. You could do it, too. If this is too forward for you and you don't want to pull a holy sneaky move that I, I often do, there are other ways for you to pray with other Christians. You can join the prayer team. You can join the prayer team. You can sign up using the prayer card in front of you. We meet every morning, not every morning, sorry, Sunday mornings at 9, well, we're getting there, okay? We got to take baby steps. 9.15 on Sunday mornings downstairs and then immediately after church at 11.45. Is that right, Vika? 11.45. Uh, this is a great way for, to, to introduce you to something that we should all be growing, which is praying with other believers. So if you're interested in that, there's a card right in front of you. It says, I'd like to join the prayer team. Give us your information and then you can start praying with other Christians. There's other things that we can be praying for, but this is a good baseline. Lastly, praying for Christians implies that Christians are asking for prayer. So our final point today is that Christians ask for prayer. So I'm not going to beat around the bush on this one. Do we ask for prayer? 
Do we? When people are asking us, hey, how are you doing? And you're not okay? Do you say, I'm fine. Pretty good. How are you doing? Or do we, like Paul, say, actually, can you, can you pray for me? I need some prayer. This takes humility. This takes honesty, not just with the person who's asking you, but with yourself to admit that you need some help. For some of us, this is hard. Sometimes this feels harder than the thing that we're asking for prayer for. And I get it. I struggle with pride and stubbornness. I will say things to myself like, Tommy, it's not that big of a deal. Like, just get over it. And I say that to myself, and I coach myself like that until I wake up in the middle of the night having a panic attack because of whatever I'm going through, when what I could have done is just reached out to someone and said, hey, I'm struggling over here. I need some help over here. I need someone, please, to pray for me. I think I struggle with this, and others of you might struggle in the same way because we just don't want to admit that we are weak or that we are struggling or that we don't want to, maybe we don't want to inconvenience other people. Maybe we think, man, there's bigger fish to fry, bigger things that people could be praying for. I was driving down the highway the other day, and I saw a van for an electrician, and the slogan was, no problem too small, no project too big. I think that's how we ought to approach prayer. Like, Christians should not have a threshold for prayer. Like, it must be this serious, but, like, not this outlandish, and I'll, I'll, like, pray inside this window. No! That is not how we ought to approach prayer. I'll pray for your cat. I'll pray for your job. I'll pray for your goldfish. And then I'll pray for your friend who's on death's doorstep. I'll pray for your hard-hearted mom or dad to come to faith after dozens of years of you praying for them because Christians pray with and pray for other Christians. Maybe the problem is you feel like you're the only one who needs prayer. So let's do this. If you need prayer for something, raise your hand. If there's something in your life that you, this is a lot more than I had envisioned, raise them nice and high, like real high. Like if you need, that's like every person in this room. So keep track of that. You don't need to actually keep track. You need to, everybody in this room needs prayer. Take note of that and ask them, hey, I saw you raise your hand at church when Pastor Tommy said that you, that you need prayer. So I know you need prayer for something. How can I be praying for you? Now, this also proves to me that we struggle as a church to ask for prayer. And I know this because every Sunday, your elders and your staff offer to pray for you in the back. And every Sunday, hardly anyone takes us up on that offer. Why not? Why not receive prayer? It's not because you don't have something you want prayed for. We just demonstrated that. This says to me that we as a church either don't believe in the power of prayer or that there is something preventing us from asking for prayer. Maybe that's pride. Maybe that's anxiety. Maybe that's fear. Maybe that's laziness. Maybe we don't care enough. Paul is an apostle. He is a prolific church planter. He is a church father, a strong spiritual leader, a writer of the Bible that we are studying right now, and he is asking for a prayer, like he is filling out a prayer card in the pew and dropping it in the bucket. 
And his prayers are so relatable. He says, pray for this tough situation I'm in with the Judeans. Pray for me as I do my job in Jerusalem. And pray that I would be able to see my friends and be encouraged by them. Look, if Paul needed prayer, so do you. Christians ask for prayer. Remember, no problem too small, no project too big. Whatever is preventing you from asking for prayer, I pray that the Lord would reveal that to you and that he would free you from that and that you'd be able to let your brothers and sisters pray for you. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For us, when we take communion, it is a weekly reminder that we are in need of Christ, that we are in need of prayer, and that we are all in this together. The end of chapter 15 is a reminder for all of us that even rock stars of the faith, those who are strong and mature in Christ, and those who are obedient to the end, they still need prayer and they need the church. There are no only children in the family of God. Mercy House, we collectively as a church exist to glorify God, to make disciples, and to encourage and support and love one another as we do those first two. This isn't easy, but five ways that we could be faithful to our collective calling as a church is by one, finding peace in the essential work of Christ in other people. Two, by trusting the Holy Spirit to sanctify others and the church. Three, evangelizing naturally when we believe that the gospel has power. Four, praying with and praying for other Christians. And five, asking for prayer. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the essential work of Christ that you have done in us that is only possible through the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can trust you to do the work in us and in our church, a work that can only be done by you. And we pray that you would show us the power of your gospel as we take the faith-filled steps needed to share the gospel with those who are around us. God, grow us as a community that prays. Humble us to be a community that asks for prayer. Thank you that even when we don't pray, even when we don't ask for prayer, Jesus, you intercede on our behalf and you pray for us. We're grateful for your word this morning, God. I pray that it would transform our hearts and that our response now through worship and through prayer would be glorifying to you. It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.